Fig Tree Ministries is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our ongoing operations rely entirely upon the generous donations from our supporters. If you've been impacted by our faith lessons, we ask that you would consider including Fig Tree Ministries as part of your annual giving plan. Secure giving is easy through the donate page at our website, figtreeteaching.com. We've also included a link below in the description section of this video. With your support, Fig Tree Ministries can expand our reach into the world, helping others just like you deepen their understanding of the Bible and connecting these principles to the transformative power of individual spiritual growth. All of this is so that we as a community can positively impact the kingdom of God in the world today. So may God richly bless you in all of your study. All right, so we've moved on from Zacchaeus, and we're heading to the very next story, which we started last week, and I'll do a quick review of that, called the Parable of the Minas. Some of your Bibles call it the Parable of the Pounds. The Greek word is actually mina, but then what the heck is a mina? Well, it's a, it's a coin or a dollar amount that's worth maybe about three months of a day laborer's wage. So it's significant, but not as significant as a talent, and we'll talk about that as we go along. But it's the next step in Luke. So the parable of the minas, um, well, first of all, let me just point this out. This is the synagogue at Magdala. So I just like to picture Jesus sitting in a synagogue telling parables, so I use that picture as our background. But it's just an amazing place. For those of you who have been there, you know what I'm talking about. But that's a first century synagogue, and it's a city that Jesus would have been to regularly, so we can assume he preached somewhere in that synagogue, or at least taught. So anyways, so if you want to open your Bible, Luke 19, 11 to 27 is where we're at. And it's a fairly long parable, and it's quite detailed and can be quite confusing. So we'll go for a couple weeks over this parable to try to flesh out some of the nuggets that are way down deep in there to gain a better understanding of what's going on. So I haven't used this image in a while, but parables, parables can be quite complex. And parables, are they're like an iceberg. You have something on the surface, and that's generally where we read a parable. You have something at the surface, but then you have something that goes much deeper. There's always deeper things layered inside the parable. So today's parable, no doubt, the number one message, faithful stewardship. And I think everybody, as you read this parable, You'll, you get that. You read it and you say, well, it's, we can obviously see there's something about stewardship of something valuable that was given to you by the king or by the landowner or by whomever. So faithful stewardship is a, that's right on the surface. Now, of course, that's no fun just to stay on the surface. We want to go deeper. We want to go flesh out some of these details that are below the surface. So just like an iceberg, you're going to have things that are down deeper. They're still there. They're still true, but they might not be at the surface. So the first one, we'll talk more about this today, is fear versus love. 
how do we how's our what's our relationship with God based on fear or love? And both of them have to be there. You have to fear who God is, but then it's a it's a relationship of love. So, but how do we act? And we'll see in the parable the one steward or the one servant that doesn't act correctly does it because he's afraid and fear diminishes us. That's one of the main points of the parable. So that's that's going to be below the surface. Second, this is a Greek word called parousia. We'll deal with that in a little bit, but that's a, it's about the return of a king. And you can see this parable is about the return of a king. Uh, we'll we'll touch on the king gives you something valuable. And they always use gold or some kind of riches to represent something valuable, but that's not really what they're getting at. It's Now, it could be money, but it's often something else. So what are we going to talk about? What are the actual riches that God gives us? And then the final one is, in a strange way, this is how we're going to end the study, is a Bible study, what we're doing right here. Why is it important to study our Bible, and how does that even... How does that get conveyed in any way, shape, or form inside this parable? So Bible study is another one. That's going to be one of our points. But this is what we're going to do. We want to go deeper. There's a whole bunch of gold nuggets underneath the surface, and we're going to go find them. Or find as many as we can, I should say. Okay, so just as way of review, this is starting at the top of your uh, the handout. And we're going to review a little bit of last week because the parable is sandwiched inside of an historical event that Jesus is recounting. That's step one. We have to know that that's there. The historical event has to do with Herod the Great. So Herod the Great, he had reigned over Jerusalem for quite some time. And when he died, he passed his kingdom along. He divided it up into four. So he has his son Archelaus, his son Antipas, his son Philip, and then Salome, she gets a couple cities. He doesn't just leave it to one person. So Archelaus becomes the ethnarch. Now, ethnarch is not quite a king. It's the ruler over a people, like an ethnicity. So Archelaus becomes an ethnarch. Antipas becomes a tetrarch, Philip a tetrarch, Salome a tetrarch. That just means you're ruling over one-fourth of a kingdom. That's all it means. Now, of these names at the top, we know some of them. Philip. Philip got the area called that's north of the Sea of Galilee where the city Caesarea Philippi is. That's his capital city. Philip's Caesarea, named after the Caesar who gave him power. Then you have Antipas. Antipas rules in, at Tiberias, which is right on the Sea of Galilee. He's the one that rules at Jesus' trial. So Antipas, we know that name from the New Testament. And finally, what we did last week, Archelaus. Archelaus was, the, was ruling in Judea when the angel told Joseph to go down to Egypt, or Joseph saw that in a dream, or however that happened. So we know Archelaus, that's from our Bible. So there's three names, all that, that lead from Herod the Great down into what's happening during Jesus' ministry. 
And Archelaus, of course, is the one that is going to fit this, what we talked about last week. So when Herod the Great died, and he said in his will, okay, Archelaus is going to take over Judea. He went up to Jerusalem, and one of the very first things that happened on his watch was during a Passover festival, there was, a, there was an uprising, and he was paranoid that they wanted to overthrow him, so he sends out Roman soldiers, and they kill 3,000 people. So that's how you welcome in your reign as king. So the people hated Archelaus because of his brutality. That's the first thing he does. Then he quickly gets in a boat, and he sails off to Rome because he needs Caesar Augustus to make him king, and he wants to be the full king. So he sails to Rome. Well, who follows? His brother Antipas follows. He wants part of the kingdom, so he's going to petition Caesar. And then a delegation of Jews and Samaritans, by the way, sail to Rome. They petition the Caesar to say, do not make Archelaus our king. Now, lo and behold, Caesar makes him an ethnarch. He doesn't give him a full kingdom. And, by the way, in 4 AD, he deposes him. He sends him to exile. Archelaus was a disaster as a ruler. So this whole story of getting in a boat, sailing to become king, having a delegation follow him, enters the parable. Now, don't turn there yet, but let me, this is just review from last week. So verse 12 says this, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and return. That's Archelaus. Verse 14 in the parable, as we'll see, but his subjects hated him. They sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to become king. And that's exactly what happened with Archelaus. So I just want what we did last week with that introduction was to make sure that we see the historical context that's happening with this parable. There's more going on that we're just not aware of if we don't, if we're only reading it at the surface. Okay, so that was all last week, the, the introduction to Archelaus. We'll talk more about that as we go on today. Just as quick review, this is not on your sheet, and it's just what we've done in the past about parable to make sure that we're, as we go to read this parable, we're reading it correctly. Parables are always story. So Jesus is going to tell a story. The idea of the story is going to suck you in, and the drama is going to keep you going in that story. And that's exactly what this does, because you're going to start thinking, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen with the servant? Uh, so it's a story that, make, that causes you to engage. It's fictional, meaning he's not telling a true story, even though he's putting elements of history in there. He's going to put details in that are going to lead to you understanding a truth principle. That's a big deal. So sometimes we read parables as if they're a literal story that happened. It's not. It's fiction that carries truth. The tortoise and the hare. Clearly, a tortoise and a hare never raced, but we understand the, the, the truth principle that the story carries with it. Finally, Jesus loves to twist things, put in a shock, right? So we'll see at the end of this, the servant who was given one mina and didn't do anything with it, gets it taken away. And the, 
Jesus even says that the people go, whoa, wait a minute. Why take that away from him? And it's a shocking, it's causing you to kind of wake up. So that's parable. It's important for us to recognize that uh, as we step in to read another parable. So parables are always used to help us understand something unknown or difficult. For instance, the kingdom of God is a difficult thing to conceptualize. God's relationship with humanity, we'll see that today. How does God interact with humanity, or how do humans interact with God? Maybe a parable might talk human to human. Two people are going at it. Sometimes parables help you understand a commandment. So those are the unknowns or difficult. And then what they do, and this is what Jesus does, is you, need, you use something from your culture or your setting that's known. So a king, that's this parable. But Jesus tells lots of parables where there's a king, a shepherd, a father, a farmer. You use something that all the people understand and will, as we go through today, every single detail comes out of their setting. Okay, so real quick, this is, I'm going to tell you some of the answers ahead of time. What's known in this parable? Well, obviously we see the idea of a king going away and coming back, and the servants were supposed to do something. And everybody in the audience can understand that. So those are the known ideas. Uh, there's some subjects that don't want the king to be king. Subjects not wanting a king. That's a normal, that happens all the time, even today. And then finally, this idea of what are the riches? We need to kind of understand what are these, what is God giving us? And there would have been something that the audience would have thought about when it comes to riches that God gives us. Now, the unknown of this parable is the king is almost always going to be God or the Messiah, right? Messiah is another word for Christ, and Christ means the anointed one, the king. So Jesus, the king. Well, the king's coming to rule. They don't want him to rule. So God, the king is usually God or the Messiah. We're going to look today that how do the servants the, the servants interact with God? So one of the servants is going to be acting out of fear. That's important for us to recognize. What happens when we operate out of fear of God? Right? Fear diminishes us. We kind of close down. That's a problem. Because God's not closed down. We're closed down. The subjects, they don't want to allow God to be king. That happens all the time today. People don't, even religious people don't want God to be king because that means you got to let go of something. And then finally, the riches, as we'll talk about today, the, the rabbis say what's God's truth or God's words are the riches and your faith walk is the riches. So we could even say, and what I'll try to show you today is the gift that God's giving is his word and his, your ability to have faith and live out your faith. What are you doing with it? Not just money, although the money represents something valuable that the king gave you. Okay, so this is, again, that's kind of what we're going to be doing. Now, sorry, that's, that was not on your sheet, so let me just make sure. That's all, we've, we've done that review with parables before, but I just wanted to make sure that it's always good to do that again. 
Okay, so the parable of the minus. As I mentioned, the main theme is faithful stewardship. I don't think anybody disagrees with that. God gives you a mina or the king gives you a mina. What did you do with it? Did you create more minas? And the idea, of course, is how did you handle responsibility from the king? That's, it's the faithful stewardship. That's the main theme. The secondary ones are all the stuff underneath of it that are really, that's where the gold nuggets are. So we're going to go down and spend more time looking at some of those secondary principles. But this is it. How did you handle God's, the gift from God and whatever that gift is? And then how did you, did you multiply it? Did you use it to multiply? So that's the main idea. Now I'm down, let me just make sure you know where I'm at. I'm on number five in the front part of the sheet. So I want to go through some of these secondary principles just so just to help build our context around the story. So the first thing we have to note, Jesus often tells parables that are stories that are common amongst the people. It's a storytelling culture. That's how they communicate things about Life is you, just like we do with our kids, fairy tales, and we communicate ideas through story, and it's a storytelling culture. And one of the very prominent themes throughout, uh, even any, all the cultures around the, the, the Mediterranean are how do you handle whatever has been given you? And one of their main thoughts is, life is tough, man. You need to pay attention. So when you want to tell your kids, watch out because if you're not if you're not using everything you have in life, life can wipe you out. That's wisdom. It's how do you walk in the world? So these are common themes. In fact, let me show you. Um, we'll do this more next week. But you all know Aesop, Aesop's fables. I mentioned the tortoise and the hare. So Aesop lived around six in the. Sixth century. That's 600 years before Jesus. He tells one of his uh, fables is called The Miser and His Gold. Now it's about a miser who had gold and he buried it. Like that sounds just like the parable of the talents and just like the parable of the, the minas that we're doing. Someone has something valuable and he buries it. And the whole point is the possession is worth no more than what you make use of it. That's the that's what this parable that Jesus is telling us. So these types of stories are embedded in the culture. So when they hear this story from Jesus, it's not like they've never heard it before. There's, it's a similar structure, and then Jesus is going to add in his own little details. So we'll talk more about the miser and his gold next week. But just know the culture loves to tell stories. Let me, I want to show you the beginning of one rabbinic parable because there are multiple parables that talk about something similar to this parable. So I've mentioned before, we have something like 1,500 parables within Judaism or Christianity. Jesus told about 40. So the rest of them come from rabbinic Judaism. Parables are a popular genre of the way you teach something. So this is a rabbinic parable, but listen to the way, the way it starts. 
This may be illustrated by a parable. Sometimes the, they'll say, I'll parable a parable. I'll tell you a parable. A king who had two servants. Now that's just like, that's similar to what Jesus is doing. A king has two servants. One loved the king and feared him. The other feared the king but did not love him. The king went into a far country. So you have a king. He leaves his place. Someone else is in charge of it. The king is going to return. And that's exactly what happens in this parable. The king returns to see what the people did. So I just want to show you that culturally, there's the structure of Jesus' parable is very common within the culture. That's my point, is that you can find other parables that sound quite similar. So he's got a basic structure, and then he's going to insert details into it. Okay. Uh, second secondary principle. Second principle is fear versus love. How is our what's our relationship with God based off of? What's our interaction with God based off of? Because in this parable, as we'll see, Jesus says the one servant didn't do anything with the mina because he feared God. So what happens when we respond? Our life is responding out of fear. Well, it causes us to freeze. We don't do anything with the, the gift that God gave us. Um, we shrink, right? How many times does God have to say, do not fear, do not be afraid in the Bible, and yet we're still afraid. In fact, we can often be afraid of God, like he's a judgmental father up in the sky. So it's important to note, why is Jesus including the piece about fear? Because the question becomes, how do we interact with God? Do we see God as a gracious, loving Father who will welcome us back even though we sin? Or we de do we see God as an angry, judgmental Father in the sky who's got a list of rules and wants to smite you every time you break a rule? So, fear versus love. How we interact with God. If you even go back to the parable I just showed you, the rabbinic parable, it's about love and fear. One loved the king and feared him. The other only feared the king but did not love him. And so you can, the rabbis are struggling with this. How do we deal with both loving and fearing God and then acting out of love? That's the main point. Okay, so that's a secondary principle, love versus fear. The third secondary principle, this is on the back of your sheet. This is a word that we should all know. It's called parousia, or some people say parousia, tomato, tomato, I suppose. Parousia. Parousia is the Greek word for the return of a king. In Latin, if you use the Latin word adventus, so what is an advent? What are we waiting for? What are we going to celebrate this Christmas? We're going to celebrate the first advent, the arrival of the king being birthed. What we're waiting for next from Jesus is his second advent, his return of a king. And when and in the Greek world, when a king is going to return, he's going to judge what you did with what he left you. That's the whole point. These come out of the culture. 
Um, Nero, Nero, there's they have documented multiple parousias of Nero. He had a parousia at Corinth, and he minted coins, advent coins. And the idea is this: like, let's say there's an earthquake, and the federal government goes into the city and says, "Here, we'll give you a bunch of money so to fix up your city." Now I'll be back. I'll be back in a few years to see what you did, and I'm going to judge your work. That's a parousia. So when we talk about Jesus coming back, he's coming back to judge. And I'll show you in a couple of weeks, there's this it's a really amazing sentence in Luke, because the next story in Luke is the king coming to Jerusalem to judge. It's the very next story. So the parousia, Jesus is the returning king. He's the representative king of God that's going to show up and judge Jerusalem. And I'll show you in a couple of weeks, there's a sentence that's just, a, there's so much information loaded into that sentence in Luke about the return of a king. So what's this parable about? It's about a, a king that's going to return and take an account. That's exactly what a parousia is. Again, it fits into the culture where the people are living. And that's exactly what we expect God to do when we when his second coming is to judge. So, okay, parousia. More on that as we go uh, along on this, because it's a really big deal. As Luke is telling the story, Jesus is coming to return. It's God's return to Jerusalem, and he's going to judge. Okay, uh, next one. This is a this one's huge. The priests, we've been talking in Luke for the past, I don't know, six weeks. Almost every parable from the rich man and Lazarus to the Zacchaeus story is how much of Jesus's ire is against the priests, the religious leaders that are holding power. And one question we have to ask is, when Jesus tells this parable, who are the subjects, who are the subjects that don't want Jesus to become the king? The priests, right? The priests do not want Jesus to become the Messiah. Because what does it mean if the Messiah arrives? What happens to the priests? They lose all their power and control and authority and wealth. They're removed. That's It's such a big deal. that it's. Can you imagine the representative of God who tells you he's honoring God and then rejecting when God shows up to be king? It's so profound. So you could say this another way. The priests, they don't want the Messiah to come. But it, it, what that means is the priests don't want God to be king. They want to be in charge. Now, this principle, we can extract this through all of time. How many people don't want God to be king? Well, that's like the, it's the common problem of humanity. I want to be in charge. I want to set the rules. I want to control everything. If you allow God to be king in your life, you lose control of things. You gain life, but you lose control. And we think, no, we have to control things to get life. No, no, no. It's the opposite. It's paradoxical. So it's the priests who don't want God to be king. So I, when that parable says there were subjects who didn't want him to become king, that's exactly what the priests are doing. In fact, they're going to kill him because he's showing up saying, I'm the Messiah. That's very profound. 
for the representatives of God to reject God as their king, even while they're smiling at you, telling you that I'm the high priest. So, extraordinary problem within humanity is how easy we can reject God as king. Okay, final one, and this is kind of what we'll end on when we get to the very end of this today's lesson, is the rabbis, again, this is, if we look at the rabbis, we can kind of say, well, what did the, what would they have heard in the first century, right? Not, not really how do we interpret it today, but what would the people have heard? And the rabbis talk about the Torah, God's words to Moses, and your ability to study the Torah are to get God's riches. That's one way to think about it. God gives you his Bible. What are you doing with it, right? Does your Bible sit on the shelf, or does the Bible... Are you actively reading it? And there's a principle inside this parable that applies to Bible study. And I'll just put it on the screen because we'll read it all in a minute. But when he says, I tell you that everyone who has, who has more will be given. Well, what happens when the more you read your or study your Bible? The more you study your Bible, the more God reveals stuff to you. Well, what happens to the person who doesn't study their Bible and then complains that God never shows them anything? You say, well, what were you doing with your Bible study? Because the more you study your Bible, the more you get from the more riches you get from God. And then it says, but as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. And it's just a way of saying that as you study your Bible, God reveals, he gives you more. If you ignore that Bible, you ignore it at your peril. So when we see this idea of something valuable given to everybody, one way the rabbis view that is God's word or God's truth. And what are you doing with God's word? That's the, so, okay, that's a long introduction to say there's a whole bunch of secondary things going on underneath the layer of what we normally read, which is stewardship. So, and those are, where, again, where the nuggets are found are underneath the surface, because these are things still that apply to all of us throughout all of time. They're transcendent principles. All right, so with that introduction, what I want to do is actually read through the text. So if you have your Bible, look at Luke 19, starting at verse 11. We'll read through this parable. It's a, it's a little bit long. And then we'll wrap it up with some ideas about teaching and studying God's word. That's, that's the most important thing. Okay, so starting at verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Now, the very next, par the very next section of your Bible in Luke is Jesus' triumphal entry and the people want him to become the king. But he tells them a parable about a kid, someone who goes away, gets appointed king and comes back. Meaning, it's not going to happen when I go over the Mount of Olives. It's going to happen later. So you're expecting something right now to happen with the kingdom of God. Verse 12, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and to return. That's the Archelaus business. Verse 13. He called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Now, 
I made a mistake on your sheet. I'll show you where the mistake is. He gives them one mina apiece. So each, you have 10 servants, they each get a mina. He gives them 10 minas. Put this money to work until I come back. But the subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. That's the Archelaus piece again. But it's also what the priests are saying about Jesus. We don't want this man to be the Messiah, our king. Verse 15, he was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants for whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a small matter, take charge of ten cities. Verse 18. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. And then notice Notice here, he calls 10 servants, but he's only giving you three examples. So the third example is, verse 20, another servant came and said, Sir, here's your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. So notice, the fact that the guy didn't earn anything isn't because he didn't have the talents, the skills, the knowledge of investment, it's because he was afraid. So now we have to ask ourselves, what does fear do to us? Okay, continuing on with verse 21. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Verse 23. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take this mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10. Sir, they said, he already has 10. That's the shocking twist there that Jesus does. He replied, I tell you to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Now that verse has caused a lot of problems throughout his history, both with opponents of Christianity and how our early church fathers read that, because that's a harsh verse. But all right, there's a lot of detail inside that parable, which is why we have to kind of work on fleshing that out. Now, one question, this is a question that scholars have, is did Jesus tell two variants of the same parable? Was there a structure of a parable, and then Jesus added all these different details in two different times? Because Matthew tells one parable, Luke tells another, and they're in different places, but they sound similar. And there seems to be a debate here. It seems to divide between Eastern scholars and Western scholars. And Eastern scholars will say, oh, of course Jesus told multiple, he would tell the same parable on multiple occasions. 
He's a teacher. That's what teachers do. As his ministry is moving along, that parable may have been told multiple times in different situations to try to draw out different things about stewardship. Westerners tend to say, no, 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 it only happened once, you know. Jesus told the parable once, we recorded it once, that was it. And I want to show you, at least from the Eastern perspective, why they think that he would have done this multiple times and using different varied details to express what he's teaching. But what happens in Matthew is you have the parable of the talents. Luke is parable of the minas. And a talent is a huge amount of money, massive amount of money. Like we can't even fathom the amount of money. Mina is a, a few months wages, so it's much smaller compared to a talent. And then in the Matthew one, the parable of the talents, he doesn't give everybody money equally. He gives them money based on their abilities. So the emphasis is your different abilities within the kingdom of God are going to be judged based on your abilities in the kingdom of God. Where in Luke, each person gets one. That's what I got wrong on your sheet. I typed in each person got 10, but it's each person gets one mina. This is where scholars would say he's talking about the Bible, right? God gave his word equally to everybody. God gives everybody the same Bible. What are you going to do with it? He doesn't give one person more Bible than the other person. So this is where you can kind of pull in the, the biblical study. Okay, and then the last thing is, and I have this on your sheet, there's two details. Matthew says the guy buried the talent in the ground, and then Luke says he hid it under a cloth. And these, we'll talk about this next week, these become important because these are cultural things. They come from rabbinic rulings. And the fact that he used the idea of hiding under a cloth, and that's directly in rabbinic rulings, is, seems more than coincidental. So even though today that doesn't make any sense to us, it would have made tons of sense to a first, century, first century audience. So the big, the big question is, did Jesus tell two variants of the same story? And I like to think that he told it multiple times as a way of expressing truth to his disciples. So what I want to show you is two different rabbinic sayings that talk about multiple teaching. Why do we read the Bible over and over? Why do teachers teach repetitively? So I put these on your sheet so that you can read them. This is from a the Babylonian Talmud. It says this, a teacher is obligated to teach his students his lesson four times. Now, why four times? Well, that's, they do this long drawn out process from Moses. Moses taught Aaron, and then they taught, you know, Aaron's sons, and then they taught uh, Joshua. And what they come up with is that the reason that the Israelites could walk into Israel with knowing what God's words to Moses were is because he taught them four times. And so the principle becomes a teacher should teach the same lesson four times because the student needs to hear it multiple times. And this is a principle that I use to keep repeating things in different ways and look at different angles because that's how we learn, right? 
there's a saying that says, repetition is the mother of teaching. You don't learn without repetition. That's why you read your Bible over and over and over your whole life. So when a teacher shows up, I want to take you on, I want to take you all around the subject and look at it eight different ways so you can see what's going on in there. And that's truly one of the principles I think here is that God's words are his riches. What are we doing with it? How many ways are we looking at it? How are we studying our Bible to get the most out of it? The more we study, the more we get out of it because that's how God is. So it's one principle and that's where you, I would think, and Eastern scholars think, Jesus must have taught this multiple times. Now, let me show you another saying that's in the same section, because you'll see why I wanted to include this in a minute. This is what we'll end on. First of all, see this word right here, eruvim. That's the section of the Talmud. You guys know what an eruv is. And a roof is that wire that goes all around College Avenue. It's the wire that goes down uh, Montezuma that tells the Orthodox Jews how far they can walk on a Sabbath. So if you remember that class, Eruvim is the plural. So it's a section that if you read that section, you'll hear all about how far outside the Eruv you can walk on a Sabbath day. Anyways. So it's in the same section, but look at this, this verse about what happens when we read the Bible. It's amazing. The rabbis love to think of the Bible as an orchard. It's like a fruit. It's full of fruit. The Bible is full of fruit from God. Your job is to get into the orchard and work the orchard and pick the fruit. And when you work the orchard, what you get is the benefit of the fruit. It's a wonderful metaphor. So here's what it says. What is the meaning of that which is written, he who guards the fig tree shall eat his fruit? By the way, that is the basis of fig tree ministry. That verse right there from Proverbs. He who guards the fruit shall eat his tree. Why were the matters of the Bible compared to a fig tree? They go on to say this. So just as a fig tree... Whenever a person searches for its figs to eat, he finds figs in it. As figs on a tree do not ripen all at once, so that one can always find a recently ripened fig, so too are the matters of the Bible. That's so true. Every time you go to the Bible, you can find some new fruit in there. It's amazing. Whenever a person meditates on them, he finds in them new meaning. So as Jesus teaches over and over and over and over, and you study over and over and over and over, you're constantly be giving new fruit. It's an amazing picture of God's why to study the Bible, because it provides you more fruit from the trees. So when you get back to this verse, I tell you, everyone who has more, the more you study the Bible, the more you will be given. But if you never study the Bible, you won't get anything out of it. It's a great lesson, and it's just kind of embedded in there. Now, you might say, well, that's not the total lesson. I get it, but it's a secondary lesson, and it's something that's very profound when it comes to our biblical teaching. Plus, I love the fact that it has to do with fig trees, so I wanted to include that just because that's fun. Okay, so let's finish up. Here's my... Uh, 
iceberg. So faithful stewardship, we all get that. God gives us gifts. What do we do with those gifts? Because we all want God to say, well done, good and faithful servant. One question that we always have to ask is, how are we operating with God out of fear or love? Because that's going to cause us to respond to the world differently when it's fear versus love. Uh, we'll talk more about parousia. What does that mean that God's returning to take an accounting? That's a very common idea, and we still have that idea. What are the riches that God is giving us? And then finally, the idea of studying your Bible. That's one of the riches, at least. What did you do with the gift that God gave you? He doesn't give that to us differently. He gives us one Bible. What did you do with that Bible? Okay, I know that's a lot of information, and I went through it pretty quickly. I wanted to at least show you these things next week when we circle back around, because that's what we need to do, circle back around and look more at these, what's underlying that, how we can understand what's underlying that parable. It starts to then broaden out our picture of what Jesus is up to. All right, so let me go ahead and stop the share.